1: and a leading Iranian general is killed in a U.S. airstrike. A corresponding escalation of cyber operations can be expected. Currency exchange Travelex continues to operate manually as it works to recover from what it calls a software virus. There's speculation that the Ravenair incident may have been a ransomware attack, and Taiwan adopts an active policy against Chinese attempts to influence its elections. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 3rd, 2020. In a case where the kinetic operations of a hot war can be expected to be accompanied by cyber operations, Iran has promised retaliation for the U.S. airstrike in the outskirts of Baghdad earlier today that killed Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force. One of Soleimani's principal collaborators, Iraqi militia commander Abu Mahdi al-Muhandi, was also killed. The Quds force is responsible for unconventional warfare and intelligence. Its commander reports directly to Iran's supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Reuters cites U.S. sources as saying the strike was intended to disrupt further plans by militia aligned with Iran to attack U.S. targets, including the U.S. embassy in Iraq. Iranian operations against U.S. assets and interests have long been asymmetric, and despite recent rocket and mob attacks, are likely to remain so. The Defense Department statement quoted at length by The Atlantic said, quote, General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region, quote. The U.S. holds General Soleimani responsible for recent attacks on U.S.-led coalition bases, including one in late December that killed an American contractor. General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint chief of staff, said yesterday, quote, We know that the intent of this attack was, in fact, to kill. Thirty-one rockets aren't designed as a warning shot, the general observed. General Soleimani was widely regarded as an effective leader who traveled widely and worked intelligently to build Iranian influence in the Arab world. He had overtly supported Iraqi Shiite militia, which accounts for his presence in the vicinity of Baghdad. Observers expect an increase in cyber conflict, and the Telegraph took a look at the current state of Tehran's capabilities. Tehran claims to have some 100,000 cyber warriors, and while this total is almost certainly considerably exaggerated, Iran's capabilities in cyberspace aren't negligible. Most of their attacks in recent years have been directed against regional rivals— especially the threat group oil rigs campaigns against Saudi targets, but Iranian outfits have hit U.S. targets in the past. The U.S. Justice Department, for example, in February 2018, secured federal indictments against nine Iranian nationals associated with the Mabna Institute, an organization that serves as a cyber operations contractor for the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Charges included conspiracy to commit computer intrusions, Conspiracy to commit wire fraud, computer fraud, unauthorized access for private financial gain, wire fraud, and aggravated identity theft. The indictment alleges that their victims included approximately 144 universities in the United States, 176 foreign universities in 21 countries, five federal and state government agencies in the United States, 36 private companies in the United States, 11 foreign private companies, and two international non-governmental organizations. This, of course, represents a small sample of what Tehran's cyber operators might be capable. Travelex, a major London-based international currency exchange, is still working to restore online services after finding what it called a software virus in its systems on New Year's Eve. The exchange is still able to conduct in-person transactions manually, and it has reassured customers that no personal data were compromised. Little information has been forthcoming about the attack on Ravenair, but it is known that maintenance software, peculiar to the airline group's Dash 8 twin turbo aircraft, was affected. How or why the attack occurred remains unknown, but the register quotes speculation that this may have been a ransomware incident. We stress this is speculation. The story is developing. The investigations are still in progress. Taiwan's government has adopted a rumor control program that appears to be enjoying some success, the Wall Street Journal reports, against Chinese disinformation campaigns mounted against the island republic's elections. Taipei's policy has combined a close relationship with social networks to ensure swift takedown of coordinated inauthenticity with very active outreach to push back against fake news. When they find disinformation, they quickly debunk it in social media and try to have the debunking take the form of an easily understood and transmitted meme. This Tuesday, Taiwan's legislature passed a law President Tsai Ing-wen fast-tracked with a view to counteracting Beijing's influence operations. The new law makes political activities that serve external hostile forces crimes, and the proscribed activities include not only spreading disinformation, but also making certain political donations and holding certain campaign events. The external hostile forces are, of course, to be found along the straits on the mainland. The program may hold some lessons for other governments concerned about hostile information operations during election seasons. It's only fair to note that Taipei's program hasn't been free of domestic controversy. The opposing nationalists, the Kuomintang, have charged that the whole effort is simply motivated to benefit the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. The Kuomintang favors closer relations with China, which the Democratic Progressives do not. In any case, observers say they've seen some abatement in Chinese influence operations. But correlation isn't, of course, necessarily causation, and there is a school of thought that sees this as just a case of Beijing having concluded that the Kuomintang candidate doesn't have a realistic shot at winning and so are just cutting their losses. One lesson other governments might study with profit is the apparent effectiveness of humor in developing memes against misinformation. One odd rumor that required debunking held that the government intended to fine hairstylists who gave a customer both a dye job and a perm within one week, and that the fines would amount to the equivalent of $33,000. The country's head of government, Premier Zhu Changchang took to Facebook with a picture of himself as a young man complete with a full head of hair and an accompanying picture of himself in his current state as an egg bald 72 72-year-old. He captioned the post by saying, Although I have no hair now, I wouldn't punish people like this. And he added a winking caution to the effect that dyeing and perming within seven days really damages your hair, and in severe cases you'll end up like me. His post got about 56,000 likes and more than 6,500 shares. The young Mr. Sue looks very serious, but the current Mr. Sue has a big grin. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast, Johannes it's always great to have you back um I know you have been tracking some issues with uh NetScaler uh, some Citrix things here can you bring us up to date what are you looking at
2: yes yeah, so uh on the 17th, uh, Citrix published an advisory with some workarounds for a critical vulnerability in their Citrix gateway, also known as Netscaler gateway and ADC. The problem here is, and this really only has become sort of apparent on the 23rd, when Positive Technologies, the company that found the vulnerability, wrote about it is that an attacker can execute arbitrary code on these devices without authentication. And uh, these devices are usually, well, your perimeter. So uh, it's not that you could say, hey, just you know, hide these devices deep inside your network. In particular, in configurations, they use the device, for example, as an SL VPN endpoint to expose internal applications. There isn't really much you usually have in front of it. And that's exactly sort of the configuration that's sort of vulnerable here. Citrix only published a workaround, meaning, rules to block access uh, to the vulnerable URLs. They have not actually published a patch yet. And with all the holidays affecting sort of you know, 70% of the globe, uh, I think this hasn't really gotten the attention it really should have gotten. Of course, you should apply the workaround really quickly. There is luckily no proof of concept exploit at this point. But hmm. I looked at the code on these devices. It's pretty messy, Uh, it's sort of what you would expect from a vendor that doesn't really worry too much about security, like any security vendor putting applications out there. It took me a day, maybe less uh, to sort of come up with a partial exploit for it. So I Hmm. wouldn't be surprised if there is already some exploit uh, in the underground that's targeting specific devices.
1: And, and that's really the game here, right that's the race against time when uh, w- when the vulnerability gets publicized, it's not just the good guys who are racing to to develop a patch the the bad guys are often running as well
2: correct and I think one reason actually that uh, and I'm just speculating here, but one reason that Citrix did not publish an actual patch is that uh, it would be very obvious what the vulnerability is by mm. um actually Publishing, uh, the, the workaround, they sort of gave you what you need to protect yourself for now without releasing too much details about the vulnerability. Like part of the vulnerability here is literally where they comment it out part of the input validation. Hmm. Uh, so some developer at some point decided, hey, that input validation is maybe too strict. Maybe for debugging purposes, they commented it out. I guess QA got cut down along the way, so they didn't catch that when they made that code live about five years ago. And since then, this particular parameter, for example, has not been validated.
1: Wow, yeah, isn't that interesting yeah. how yeah. Uh, things can uh, just hang around in the, in the code for years and years?
2: And I think it's a little bit of trend uh, these days where researchers and the bad guys are really looking at these parameter devices closely. Now, uh, users ask for more and more features in these parameter devices, meaning more and more code that's now exposed at your parameter. We have seen, like, for example, that 40 gate uh, directory traversal vulnerability last year and a couple others. Basically, you know, know what you ask for when you want more features, you'll also get more bugs. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. They giveth and they taketh yeah. away. <laughs> All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining Thank us. My guest today is Derek Menke. He's Chief of Security Insights and Global Threat Alliances at Fortinet. Our conversation focuses on artificial intelligence in cybersecurity. It's a topic that's been beat up quite a bit thanks to overzealous marketing in the sector, as Derek Menke addresses.
0: If we look at AI as a whole, using machine learning models and uh, actionable artificial intelligence on things like voice recognition and other applications, it's been much more mature. Looking at cybersecurity specifically, there has been a lot of overreach, I think, with it. Um, You know, when you look at marketing of AI as like this universal solution that's going to be introducing self-healing networks and all of these things, you know what? Well, I think that's certainly part of the future. The reality where we sit today, I I believe we're entering into a second generation. Um, So... Backing up around two, two to five years ago in, in cybersecurity, most applications of AI have been uh, antivirus-driven. You know, machine learning models that have been put in place specifically to recognize malicious code patterns to be able to you know recognize that, push out signatures to block those. Right, that's been a traditional approach to AI. It's been a, a monolithic model. Um, meaning that it's cloud-based, so it's basically one learning node where you know all the viruses will feed in, and you can do uh, through that model do do the processing, and then push out some sort of decisive pattern to other organizations where those security appliances sit to be able to act on that. So in reality, what we need is an actionable AI system, right? Uh, artificial intelligence that can actually take of action with a very low risk of false positive positive. and again right now the current state of the industry is this this first generation of ai which is mostly driven towards uh, code blocking and, and antivirus
1: and so where do we stand in terms of that next generation being within our reach
0: yeah so we're starting to enter this now like I'm, I'm seeing it around the industry uh, we're also doing this um, at the 49 as well, and what what I'm seeing is um, that basically in the second generation is extended reach to those learning model nodes. So instead of just having this monolithic brain, if you will, uh, in the cloud that's doing all the processing and that's relying on everything to input into it. We're seeing now extended reach in the second generation of AI, which is a regional learning system, right? So you have now, you have, you're have you basically extending the same success that you've had for machine learning models in the cloud and putting them onto on-premises, so regional sites, you know, different verticals, different environments, different nodes of inspection for traffic, different types of traffic. All of this now is entering into the second generation of AI, where those regional learning nodes extend into the cloud. So now they're also collecting data and feeding the cloud based off of its learned results, right? So then the cloud model can still take that extra input from these regional brains, do some additional processing and crunching, and then distribute that out to security appliances.
1: You know, I I think there's been so much messaging about AI, so so much marketing um, and uh, even to the point of hype Do you have any insights on the organizations who are offering these services? How should they be formatting their messaging? How should they be getting the word out to the folks who might be buying these things to kind of cut through that hype, to spread the word about what it's really useful for?
0: In the security industry, most people rely on data sheets and those can be quite biased sometimes, right? I mean, it depends on your data sets, on, on, your, on your test environments and all those things. I really believe in third-party testing, right? So, you know, we do this with NSS Labs as an example, as you say, VB100, which does uh, testing for proactive detection. Again, these are the sorts of things I think, uh, you know, I, I believe you really have to put the rubber to the road and, and for, for from a marketing campaign or a standpoint, Show that you know this this can be effective. Show use cases, show examples like real world examples that we're actually seeing out there, not just numbers on a data sheet. right um, I, I think that's a really good approach. It's easy to walk through things like um, you know apt groups um, quite quite recently. A big engineering project that we're undertaking according Fortinet is a playbook development. So creating playbooks on, on attackers and adversaries, and then really showing how your technologies can relate to these real-world attacks that that are quite well documented now. Um, you know, MITRE documents and a lot of other groups too. So, I mean, it, it's an education standpoint for people to be more aware of these threats, but also show how AI can stack up to that. You know, especially. It gets even more important and interesting, I think, as we enter into the third generation of AI. I mean, it's 2020 now, we've just turned into 2020, but uh, not not really that far away, I don't think.
1: And what, what can we expect to see when it comes to that third generation?
0: In the future, I believe that we're going to get into this federated machine learning models where you have different devices doing their own machine learning, but peer to peer. So talking to each other and being able to pass data. So it's much quicker and and then actually um, you know be able to act on that data so it's like a regionalized response uh completely on premises. so more of a distributed ai as a system model that's going to allow for a lot of fascinating cases i think obviously a much quicker response which is by the way incredibly important um because i i often talk about the weaponization of, of artificial intelligence how attackers are going to be able to leverage ai uh to you know get in and out of networks much quicker so, yeah, in the future of these, this federated machine learning model, where you have all these different parts of the attack surface that you're covering with different machine learning nodes, appliances, and models that can all in- interconnect and talk to each other. You know, only then, I think, once we get into that model, that we can start getting into these, I think what's been kind of promised before, talked about, this futuristic scene of, again, autonomous uh, security, self-healing networks, and so forth. A big journey that we're going into is threat intelligence. So I think artificial intelligence uh, applications of that for threat intelligence is also going to be a very important thing in the future. We're already starting to use it. What we're starting to see now, you know, with threat intelligence is is using AI to build playbooks, right? And so playbooks are obviously a, a complete guide and map mostly using the miter attack framework but a complete guided map to how an attack group is moving you know what regions are they operating in what, what verticals are they hitting what's their infrastructure look like what are their tools look like how are they moving a lot of that's pattern based right and so by using machine learning and artificial intelligence on for for threat intelligence is really important because it starts exposing you know, it's a lot quicker to see things that the human eyes can't see, you know, exposing patterns, exposing, doing trending and forecasting to, to attacks and, and how they've been moving and where they may move in the future. So predictive analysis as well. That's also a really interesting scenario that we're already starting to, uh, to unravel a bit. So, uh, you know, in- interesting things, right?
1: That's Derek Mankey from Fortinet.